Gresham College presents Observing the Dark Ages by Professor Joseph Silk. So good afternoon, everybody. Um, it's a pleasure to be um, back for my um, next uh, lecture, Gresham Lecture, the last one of the current academic term. Um, and today I'm going to talk about the Dark Ages, um, about the Dark Ages from a point of view that uh, may be a little strange to some of you because this will be the Dark Ages of the universe where there really is a Dark Ages, and uh, which represents the era that we cannot see directly, where there were no stars. Um, but it's critical, because if we want to understand our beginnings, the traces are there, and we have to explore them somehow. Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> cosmology is the study of the universe, and we've made enormous progress in this field over the past few years. Um, it's become... Um, Precision science, that's the big change. Um, uh, you know, it, people have wondered about the universe and its contents and its origin for a very long time. But um, maybe at the turn, early in the 20th century, um, Einstein made a huge contribution with general relativity, which contained the tensor calculus. And this made a big difference because suddenly it was the experts only who could understand and the cosmology and joined the debate. And, um, and ever since then, um, the scientists have jumped in with their experiments and it's become very much um, a question of precision, of the details now, to try to understand the missing links. So what are these missing links? Um, well, they're, they're unfortunately rather significant. Um, we don't know what the universe is made of. We call this the dark matter. We haven't, we're looking for it. We haven't identified it. Um, we don't know uh, the major content in the energy of the universe uh, called dark energy, which is responsible for um, acting against gravity, accelerating the universe. We don't know what that, what that is. We, haven't, we, we see it at work, but we're trying to understand it better. But, but above all, and what I'm going to um, mostly focus on in this talk, is the beginning. Where did we come from? And we have a wonderful theory um, developed in the 1980s which tells us a lot about where we came from. Um, and we're trying very much to understand and test this theory. It's all right to have a theory of something, but it's no good unless you can prove that it's true. And the trouble with theories in science in general is you can never be really certain something is true. What you can do is show that it's very, very likely. You know, um, and, um, you know, you can believe in astrology, for example, um, and, you know, that you, you, you can show that is highly unlikely, but that doesn't stop some people believing in it. Um, we try to do sort of the opposite in, in science. We try to show things are very likely and give people confidence. So inflation then, um, this is sort of um, a picture of, of our understanding of the universe. So here we are today. Um, and this was the beginning, and it's deliberately made very fuzzy because there's a big question mark because we have no theory of what happened at the very beginning. Um, but then our, our theories begin with this epoch of incredibly rapid expansion called inflation. And we can actually see back with telescopes to this first period, the, the end of this inflation period really, some three or 400,000 years after the Big Bang, before then it was too dense to really see very much, um, um, and this is the microwave background, and we measure the seed fluctuations on this with, with telescopes in space. And ever since the, these things, these seeds, these ripples in space grow into structures which make the galaxies, and one of which we live in, the Milky Way galaxy. Okay, so here's where the stars first appeared. And before then, we call that the Dark Ages. And before then, um, uh, well, there's a big fog and we can't really see back any further. But the inflation does tell us that things did begin at a very specific instant in time, very close to, to time zero, projecting backwards from now. So how do we actually understand more about that? So the, let me just show you a slightly blown up view of the Dark Ages. Okay, so, um, so here we are. This is 400,000 years after the Big Bang. And we see in this fuzz on the sky, seen with microwave antennas, um, uh, it's been said that if you turn your television um, in between stations, you see a fuzz on the screen, it's out of tune. And 1% of that fuzz on the screen is the glow from the early universe, seen in microwaves, and discovered um, um, in the mid-20th uh, century. 
Anyway, um, the tiny changes in, 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 in strength in, seen as fluctuations um, are, are what um, we see now as um, proofs of that there were structures from which all structure began, fluctuations, seeds, if you like. But before those stars first appeared um, in the middle of this picture, um, you have a period when nothing was there, just darkness. And we have to understand the building blocks from which galaxies were made. There were clouds of gas that are not glowing. And we're trying very much to, to you know, we're trying to push back in time to get as close as we can to the beginning. Okay, so what are these challenges that we have before us? Um, so one of them is to um, understand the, um, the building blocks from which galaxies made, um, these gas clouds from which the Milky Way assembled and all other galaxies around us assembled. Um, another one is to find an imprint from the beginning. So when the universe underwent this incredible expansion from very, very early on, which we call infl the inflation theory, there was a lot of shaking around in this rapid move. Um, expansion, which led to um, things called gravity waves. Now, gravity waves basically are just um, just like electromagnetic waves, except they're produced by changing the gravity field, and they've been measured recently uh, by specialized antennas. They're a prediction of Einstein's theory that they should be seen, and um, we've seen them due to stars, actually, merging black holes, actually, stars that turn into black holes and then merge together. When you form a black hole, you get a burst of gravity waves that was discovered just a year ago, um, predicted 100 years before by Einstein. And that there should similarly be something imprinted from the beginning of the universe. Now, unfortunately, the universe expands so much, so these gravity waves from, from early on, which may have been very high frequency at the beginning, get slowly, slowly redshift, expanded with space. Their, their frequency goes down and down and down. Very hard to measure, but they leave um, a, a signature, a twist on the microwave background fluctuations, which we're searching for. I haven't found them yet. And then, and finally, uh, what I'm going to talk about later, and I'll explain exactly what I mean by this, is that these fluctuations not only have this gravity wave twist on them, um, but they also have something else, which I'm, I'll explain what that is, non-Gaussian energy, non-randomness, basically. And that's an imprint also of the very beginning. So if, if we could actually measure any of these three things that would take us back further, the building blocks before the first stars, clouds of gas, and these other two imprints would actually tell us about the very, very beginning, how inflation occurred, whether inflation really did occur, it's just theory. Okay, so um, the building blocks. So in this cartoon, you can see um, how structure today at the bottom was assembled from many smaller things. Okay, so this hierarchy is how structure forms in the universe. Um, and um, today we measure the large-scale structure, the assembly of galaxies, uh, many galaxies, big ones, the Milky Way, others. Then there are lots of small galaxies around, and these are thought to be the building blocks of the bigger ones. But where all the galaxies came from was even smaller building blocks, gas clouds, um, which were there a long time ago, and they're predicted by the theory um, of the nature of the dark matter. And so, um, and there should be lots of dense clumps in the matter distribution, which were there from very long ago, okay? Clumps, gas clouds. And these can't be seen today because they've all assembled in the galaxies, but if you could look back in time, um, with telescopes that can actually look at things very far away in the universe, powerful enough telescopes, then you can hope to see these direct, these direct clumps. And so here is, for example, um, I, uh, a cartoon of such clumps. Um, I see here that the universe is now thought to be full of inexplicably dense clumps. Someone reading the newspaper. Okay, right. So this is what we're looking for. So how do we go about this in, in, in the real world of astronomy? So... Um, we, we have this beautiful radiation, the microwave background from the beginning, um, with these tiny fluctuations embedded in it, which are the seeds of structure. Um, and um, we study this, and so we can, by measuring the variation on the sky of these ripples in the radiation, slight variations in temperature from place to place in the sky, we can understand the origins of where the structure of the universe comes from. Um, Okay, so that, that's good. That takes us back to 400,000 years after the Big Bang. We're seeing the origins of large-scale structure, but we'd like to understand where everything comes from, and we know the building blocks of big galaxies are small galaxies. So we have things called dwarf galaxies, and there are also, many of them are very old. They're relics from the beginning. Many of them were, were you know, assembled into bigger things, but a lot are left over, and those we study too. They're like fossils, basically, from the early universe. 
And then finally, um, the most mysterious thing of all, which can take us back to the, really the beginning, the first year of the Big Bang, is the following. Um, um, it's the fact that the Big Bang theory predicts um, this, um, this perfect black body, okay? And we measure this, okay? What's amazing is this is an experiment um, which was actually done um, in 1990 by an, an, a satellite called the COBE uh, satellite. And um, the blue curve is a black body curve, and these red lines are error bars, but they're multiplied by 50. And if anyone has ever seen error bars, this is the most amazing you know, demonstration. The universe was once a perfect furnace, measured in the sky. Okay, but if this picture is true, that there really are all sorts of smaller building blocks out there early in the universe, and they should leave some imprint, um, you shouldn't have a perfect black body. Now, if you go back early enough in the universe, before the first year, basically, it was so dense, so hot, that only it was, a, it was the perfect furnace. But as the universe expanded, then you could expect to see slight deviations from this perfect black body radiation. And so this experiment is being designed to look for just that, to look for tiny, it hasn't been seen yet. Um, and, but this, if we ever do this, and if this project gets approved, it finds something that will just get us back to one year after the Big Bang, which is amazing, because right now we can see back to 400,000 years. Um, and so we can go back much, much closer. But what we'd like to do is probe the first fraction of a second after the Big Bang. And that gets us back to the story of the gravitational shaking of the, these microwave background, this tiny distortion you might imprint on it. So here is um, a picture of what those um, distortions might look like. Um, and getting to, to this point is what's been called the ultimate goal in current cosmology. I'll try to persuade you that one can do even better in a moment. But basically, um, this uh, sphere in the middle is a picture of the, of the microwave sky, and you can see tiny hot spots and cold spots in, in these fluctuations. And those are the seeds from which all our structure, structure formed. And then uh, what we'd like to do is to have a much more precise look at these fluctuations, look for tiny twists due to um, the um, imprint of the shaking of the universe in the first, um, wait for it, tenth to the minus 37th of a second you know, a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the beginning. That's when inflation occurred, and it would leave this, these weird distortions. So this is the distortion on the right of the gravity waves, and there's another one which comes from stuff in between that you have to get rid of just from the effects of dark matter, which is a real problem. So you have, it's like, you know, driving along and having a very dirty windshield trying to see the road. This stuff is hidden, but we hope to do that. Um, in the next few years. And so there are many experiments. Um, I showed you one of them. There's a Japanese experiment too being, being prepared for launch in 2022. Um, and there are all sorts of um, other experiments um, to look for this. One could do some of this on the, from the ground. And um, we have experiments um, at, at the South Pole. Why the South Pole? Because there there's um, so little um, water vapor in the air, it's so cold, that it's really transparent to the microwaves. And so that's a good place to go to look for these subtle effects, or in space, which is much more expensive, of course. And then Atacama Desert, another very high area where they're building telescopes and on high-flying balloons. OK, so all, all these will happen in the next 10 years to look for these tiny twists. Um, but the, 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 the problem with all of these experiments is that we're looking for this, this weird thing, which is called the B-mode. And you can say, you know, is there any guarantee to be or not to be? And the trouble is the theory of inflation does not predict a definite signal to, to look for. It could be there. If we're lucky, we'll find it. If we find it, it'll be proof. We went through this incredible expansion, a tiny fraction off the beginning. It'll, it'll give us immense trust in this theory, but it may not be there. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a, a much more... Um, um, about a much more risky strategy, but one much more futuristic, but I think it's the only one we can really um, think of now if we really want a definite answer. Um, and this is going in a, in a different direction totally from developing telescopes to look at microwaves. I'll show you that we, it's something totally different. And um, the, the, the idea is that you want to look for patterns on the sky in the microwave radiation that are, um, that are just non-random. Um, uh, so we call this, um, you know, in the end, you know, if you shake enough things up in a box, it always looks totally Gaussian, totally, totally, uh, there's no particular pattern that 
that emerges is just random chaos. But if, if there is any imprint from this um, early theory of inflation, there should be a slight element of, of non-randomness. And that's what I want to try to explain to you. OK. Um, and so the problem is that inflation then has this prediction of very, very weak gravity waves. But there's a generic prediction, which is this non-randomness, which you call non-Gaussianity. And there's always got to be some. And, and um, you can sort of understand that in a simple way, because um, you know, if I take some, um, uh, some function that's totally uh, random in physics, and I do a bit of algebra on it, I, I square it, then it turns out then to look very different from random. That's one example, one simple example. But I'm going I'm to show you um, more specifically one or two pictures. Okay, so this is an element. This is what I mean by this. So this is the same. This is a, a simulation of the universe. Okay, large chunk of the universe, um, as you'd see maybe in, in in the galaxy distribution, for example. And so th this is based on what we actually observe. So th th the one on the left then is the um, is the real structure of the universe. Okay, very close to observations. And the one on the right is taking exactly the same model, but mixing it up. Okay, so you randomize it completely. Okay, and you get the one on the right. So if you like, the strength of all the fluctuations is exactly the same in the two pictures. It's their phases that are different. And, um, and so, in other words, it's the difference from randomness that is essential to our being here. Okay, now this is, in fact, the universe as it is today, more or less. But it's clear that we live in a very... You know, if things were random, we'd all be basically dissolved into, you know, uh, into, into just chaos. But that's not the case, um, uh, you know, in most parts of the world anyway today. So, um, right. So um, you can say the left is our, our universe, the right is not. Okay. So let me show you another example of, of, of one of the problems in this field. So this is, again, a picture of the microwave background, the fluctuations that were discovered. Um, and um, this also, you know, looks at first sight non-random, okay? And I'm going to show you a very simple example of the non-randomness in this picture, um, which is totally a result of all the messiness in our galaxy, the dirty windshield effect. And so what I want you to look at is this particular area, and I've blown it up over here, and you can see the letters SH, right? If you, if you look at that very carefully. Okay, you can see the H more clearly, right? Okay, so this clearly um, is not the initials of Stephen Hawking. But nevertheless, um, it, it's the problems that you have in trying to extract some signal that must be underlying all of this. This is some artifact of uh, the dust in the galaxy and many other things, um, instrumental noise. And so we somehow have to get beyond this, okay? And it's very, very hard with the microwave background. With, and um, I want to show you what, why that is. So... Um, um, what, what can we do then to try to do better than getting, dealing with this, with this messy, messy picture? So the idea is that we're looking for a signal that's a very small um, fraction of the total signal, but sort of like a twist to it, basically, uh, a twist that's much weaker even than gravity waves. And so we express all of this into some, um, into some number. So I called it this number over here, this parameter over here. It doesn't matter what it is, but what I want to tell you is that we measure something of this. We set limits on it today with the microwave background, and that limit is less than 10. But to really test our theory, we have to improve that number by 1,000. And we have to go down to, um, not from 10, um, but to something like 0.01. So that's 1,000 times improvement, which is a huge effect in precision in any experiment in cosmology. Um, and... Um, we just uh, are searching desperately for ways to do this. And it will be impossible with any experiment we can conceive of using the microwave background of the universe. I'll try to explain why that is. Um, so we have to somehow to um, go beyond looking for these gravitational waves. And we somehow want to improve on the microwave background satellites. Planck is the name of the last one that has the most beautiful results on the sky. Um, we have to do a hundred times or more better than that. Okay, so how can we how can we think of doing much more precision cosmology in the future? Well, the first thing you have to realize is that the microwave background is very limited. So if you consider how many patches on the sky you can look at um, with the telescopes we have before you run into these irretrievable problems of the signals being contaminated completely, you have at most a million different patches on the sky. You're limited to that completely, okay? And um, so you, you, 
And what is more, all these patches on the sky are on the, or in this map I showed you, which is a map, it's like a surface of the universe, you know, as we see 400,000 years of the Big Bang. I showed you that, that sphere with the fluctuations on. So it's not even a three-dimensional thing, it's projected on the sky. And so we're looking at a million patches on the sky. And um, if you ever try to do any statistics, you know that you're just limited by random variations. And with the number of, of a million, then the most you can ever do is 0.1%. It's, you take the square root of that number, and that gives you the fluctuations from place to place in the sky. And so numbers like that, so you can never, ever do better with the microwave background than with this sort of... Um, uh, because of this problem of just your limited sampling on the sky. They're just... Uh, you just cannot basically get enough different patches on the sky. Um, okay, so the question really is, um, how do we do better? Okay, so um, one of the big hopes of the next few years is to use galaxies. And so the beauty of galaxies is that because they have distances from their redshifts, basically, you can slice the universe up into different shells looking further and further away. So you, you can work in three dimensions, basically, whereas the microwave background is just something on the sky that you can see. Okay, so you can work with that. That means you have much more power, and you can basically, in the future surveys we're talking of, they will maybe measure a billion galaxies or something. Um, and so that takes you up in this number of independent patches on the sky um, from a million to maybe a billion, okay? But that's maybe a bit over-optimistic because um, the galaxies are a bit messy, so we think maybe more realistically you can win by 100 with N, which is good. Um, but this is not good enough because at the most, because things only you know, work as the square root of whatever number you're increasing things by, you can win a factor of 10, which is not enough to, to go. So what you have to do now is to go back to these building blocks, okay? Long before that we formed over here, there were all these clouds of gas way back when, in the Dark Ages, before any stars had formed. And so the question is, how on earth can you, how on earth can you go back and study that part of the universe? This is before stars, by definition, what we mean the Dark Ages. Um, after the Big Bang, um, after the radiation, you know, cooled down, allowed the matter to start clumping, it first made clouds, the clouds assembled to galaxies, and then made stars. So you have to, because telescopes take you back in time, the further back you can look with a big telescope goes back in time towards you know, the few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, you can sample in principle these areas where there's nothing. But how do you sample them if you can't see light? What do you look at? So there's one thing you can look at from hydrogen, which is um, a very powerful test of the universe. And, and this is a, a property of atomic hydrogen. So atomic hydrogen basically is just a proton plus an electron. And the electron has a certain structure in its levels. And if I can have collisions between hydrogen atoms, the, the electron um, in these levels, I've indicated schematically um, a transition from one level to another level. And, it, and, it, and this, th this transition corresponds to a wavelength of 21 centimeters. Okay, and we study hydrogen everywhere in the universe, in our galaxy in the Milky Way, by doing radio astronomy at 21 centimeter wavelength, which is 1400 megahertz or so about, you know, basically. Okay, so what are you gonna do? Um, um, and, and these electrons are excited by um, collisions. They, they go from one spin to another spin, and, and when the thing then, um, the hydrogen then stays there for a while, the electron comes down again, emits energy, and you can see emission. And if there's some background radiation, then that can excite the electron and you take out energy at this particular frequency, you get absorption. So this is how we map things far away with hydrogen. Okay, so this is what you want to do. You, you want to basically look for hydrogen clouds and you're going to look for the effect of, um, of there being the microwave background, basically, going through this hydrogen and taking out a tiny bit of the microwave background radiation, which causes the jump of the electron and gives you a black spot effectively in the background, which is the very, very exact frequency of the energy level difference. And so you, because you're measuring this happens at a very precise frequency from, from the quantum theory, very precise wavelength, you know because between then and now, there's a certain expansion of the universe, it gets redshifted, you know exactly when this would have occurred. So that, that's sort of the idea in principle. Okay, um, so, sounds all miraculous, but let me show you um, the way this works for hydrogen as it really is in the universe. So, so this schematically shows you the temperature of the, of the radiation, which now is seen as microwaves, 
at three degrees Kelvin. Okay, that's the perfect black body radiation, almost perfect, from the Big Bang. But if I have hydrogen gas in the universe, I do, because that's what our galaxy is made of, or stars are made of initially of hydrogen, then the, the, the matter actually cools down more rapidly than the radiation. So initially when things are dense, they're very tightly mixed together, nothing happens. But eventually, after, after time, after again a few hundred thousand years, the universe becomes more transparent, the hydrogen becomes atomic, and then the matter cools down. And when the matter is colder than the radiation, you can then see in principle an absorption against the background. And you produce these dark absorption lines in the background, which would be traces of the first hydrogen clouds in the universe. All the building blocks of the galaxy in principle should be there. Okay, so it sounds incredibly tough, and the reason it's um, complicated is that if you wait too long, then stars start forming, and they mess things up completely, because they will heat up the gas, etc. There's a narrow window in time where you can go with your radio telescope to push back um, to look for this hydrogen. And because this happened a long time ago, this has expanded very much ever since, you're looking um, for 21 centimetres, but greatly, greatly expanded. In fact, you have to wait until it's, you have to go back so far that it expanded all the way from 21 centimetres to, to a few metres, basically, and that then gets you far, far enough back in time to see the maximum effect of the difference between the matter and the radiation. So that's what you're looking for, ideally. So it's a really, really tough experiment to do. Okay. Um, um, and, um, and precisely, you hope to do it because you know exactly what this frequency is that you're looking for, you know it's going to be spread out, expanded by a factor of 50, so it, it, it goes from you know, gigahertz down to megahertz, whatever. Okay, um, very low frequency, it's very, very hard to do, but, and you probably cannot do it anywhere on the Earth, as I'll explain in a moment, but this, this is what the future has to be. Okay. okay, so why do you want to go back so early in the universe? So this just shows you, uh, it's a slightly more technical slide, but it shows you the, the reason for doing this. So this just um, uh, is the area here that we measure. This is the strength of the, of, the, of the signal you're looking for. This is the area we can measure with the microwave background for large-scale structure from the microwave background. This is what we can ever do with galaxies. And then finally, if we can ever measure these clouds with, with high precision and very excellent angular resolution, far better than we have over here, then we can actually piece together, this is the power you can hope to get, and this shows you the sort of redshift you have to get to, maybe 50 or something, to measure the best signal you can. This is the strength of the signal you're looking for. Okay, so you have to go back in time if you ever want to get this signal. That's, that's the message, and it's not going to be easy to do. Okay. Um, Okay, so, um, it, so to do this, instead of my million patches on the sky, I will need a million times more, which sounds incredible. Um, but there are, there are clever ways to do this because, because you measure frequencies, you can measure different frequencies, and you can, sli again, slice the universe up into different shells, so that helps a bit. Okay, so ultimately, um, that's what you're going to do. Um, and... Um, and the precision goes up as this, this, this huge number. So going up from a million for the microwave background to, to a trillion now, we could in principle get this wonderful factor of 1,000 and look for this ultimate goal. OK, so that's enough for the theory. I'm now going to talk to you about the practical obstacles to this dream, OK? And you'll see they are truly remarkable, OK? So here is the first problem, OK? This shows you the problems that we have on the Earth when you look at these very low frequencies. And so... This is the effect of television and microwave, um, uh, all microwave links, um, mobile phones. And so these red divisions are basically channels that are occupied by amateur radio, all sorts of things. And so you cannot do cosmology um, from the Earth because of all this terrestrial noise, basically. Even if you go to some very quiet place on the Earth, maybe in the middle of the Pacific Ocean or somewhere to try to imagine, you know, away from all the mobile phones, you'd still find that it would be uh, almost impossible. Okay, and this is because you're looking at a, at a frequency where all this is true, 30, 40 megahertz. So there's only one place in the inner solar system which is good enough for this, and that is the far side of the moon, because the moon blocks all this emission from the Earth. So if you can go to the far side of the moon, then your radio choir enough to be able to work at these frequencies which can then take you to the very early universe where you hope to see this signal that comes from before the first galaxies formed, the dark ages signal. Okay? 
So that's your best hope. Okay, so, um, so the moon then is the most radio quiet environment in the inner solar system. So we have to go to the moon and go to the backside of the moon. Okay, so what I'm going to tell you now is the future of this um, as envisaged um, by our um, space agencies. Um, so it's interesting that in the, um, in the US, the space agency there is focused very much on going to Mars. Um, and they are um, planning ahead um, for many missions to Mars, eventually manned missions to Mars, maybe in 30 or 40 years. This was um, a centerpiece of, um, of um, the last Bush administration, actually. It's been up and down ever since, but it's being revived now by the Trump administration, this idea of eventually planning to do something major on Mars. And the moon is just a step in the way. On the other hand, um, the European Space Agency, which we're still part of, um, has visions for doing things on the moon. And so I'll show you in a moment pictures of a moon village that is a visionary concept being um, pioneered by the European Space Agency. And you'll see there are many reasons for doing this. And science at the moment is not, is not one of them, but that, that I hope could change. Okay. Um, so to start all of this process in going to the moon, the first thing you probably want to do is to put a satellite around the moon. Okay, so this is a, this is a proposed uh, satellite. Um, and this would be sort of a, like a pioneer experiment in terms of, in principle, um, you know, when the satellite goes around the backside of the moon, it can actually have much better sensitivity and then test all the, 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 these, these arguments. Um, and there are examples already uh, on the Earth of similar t antennae to this, very simple ones, in, in, in large deserts, okay, um, where they actually are observing the sky. But, of course, you need not just one antenna, but many, many to basically cover this wide range of, of ang angle, you know, skies on the, uh, angles on the sky. A single dipole like this basically just has a very crude uh, resolution, although it may be very sensitive. So what is the strategy behind all of this? Um, so the idea is that um, um, to, to get the, this signal coming from the beginning of the universe which needs um, a very fine angular resolution. I mean, the moon itself is about half a degree, 30 arc minutes. You have to be able to resolve with your telescope you know, a much finer angular scale of a few arc seconds. And that means going from radio telescopes, which at the moment the largest ones are kilometers across in arrays of telescopes, to ones which are hundreds of times larger to do better. Okay. And so that means um, you want to think about a rays on, on the moon, on the far side of the moon, of hundreds of kilometers or more. Um, and you, you can estimate what the bandwidth might have to be in your radio antenna. Some, um, and that, that will help you then, because if you have fine, fine enough bandwidth, you can then slice the universe up and, and look for these structures that I've been talking about. Okay, so the, the far side of the moon is a unique site for all of this, and it allows you to suddenly go from your million patches on the sky with the microwave background to now huge numbers, 10 billion maybe, um, just because you're looking at the tiny building blocks that you can't possibly see um, uh, in the microwave background radiation. It's a totally different technology, totally different window on the universe. Um, and so you can suddenly then get this immense increase in power compared to the microwave background. Okay, so that's the hope. Um, and so you can win by this factor of a 1,000, um, uh, in precision, which is what you want to do. And um, you can do precision cosmology now a thousand times better than you can today. And you probably need satellites going around the moon as well as some huge station on the moon to build this array. So let me show you a concept study of what, we, what one might be planning to do. Okay. So the idea is to have a lunar rover okay, um, have a huge roll of mylar or something equivalent to mylar. And in this mylar-like material is embedded um, all these um, antennas. These are dipole antennas, hundreds of them. And then um, this rover would then lay them out, and they'd be connected by coaxial cables, and the rover would lay them out on the surface of the moon. Okay? Um, each one of these might be um, you know, several hundred meters altogether, and then you would have many, many thousands of these. Each one would have maybe a you know, hundred or more, maybe a thousand little antennas on di di so-called dipole antennas, and you have hundreds of these different stations around the backside of the moon, and maybe you would work your way up to uh, you know, a million single elements, these things. That, all, all that seems feasible in principle. Um, what have we done so far on the ground? I'll tell you what the major problem is in all of this. So this is an example of a telescope under construction. This is a, actually, most of it's been built already in Canada. 
Um, this is in British Columbia. And so this is also a, a collection of, of, in this case, just a thousand different antennae lined up in these cylinders. And they're also very simple uh, telescopes designed also to look for hydrogen. Not quite at these very long wavelengths we're talking about. This would be in the more nearby universe, but again, doing cosmology. And so this actually is the most powerful system in the world in the sense of being able to take all these thousand antennas and, and correlate all the signals together. And so if you ask how many operations do you have to do to just combine all the signals and make a map of the sky, this particular antenna, um, its world record is, which has the world record, is doing something like um, um, 10 to the power of 15, that's a thousand trillion multiplications every second, okay? Sounds amazing. That's the limit of what you can do with the world's currently most powerful computers, okay? And so this is, the, this is essentially um, that, that could be applied to, to, to experiments like this. So this is where we are at the moment. The problem is that if we want to do this on the moon with this system I mentioned, well, you have, um, you know, a thousand times more antennas, okay? That means you have a thousand squared more combinations, million. And so... Uh, you know, even though you're working at much lower frequency, you have to now do much better by five powers of ten, okay, in the future to do this on the moon, to get this computing power. So how on earth can you... That's a huge improvement on current computing constraints, right? How can you make this giant step in computing? Well, there's one interesting thing that takes you in this direction, okay, and that is the immense progress we've had in computing over the past... Um, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. It's been incredible. And the basic rule, practical rule, is that our computing power doubles every year. Okay? This may seem extraordinary, but this is Moore's law, and it's been plotted here for 120 years. Um, and every year, so this actually starts with the simplest computers, um, or even uh, non-computers, analytical um, counting machines, 1900, all the way up to, um, to projected to around now, okay? And so it keeps on exponentially growing, okay? And so now um, this is plotted in computing power per dollar, and if you multiply this by a million dollars, you get the 10 to the 20, 10 to the 15th I showed you for the current power of that machine. And you have to now increase this by this factor of nearly a million, but you can do that um, if we now go forward to 2030, it'll keep on going, and bingo, we should be there eventually. So we, we think that this immense computing effort that you need to do stuff on the moon may not be a great problem if you allow for, um, um, for, the, for the future. So in, in 16 years, our compute power should increase enough by, um, to get you know, doubling every year. That means in 16 years, it increases as by 100,000, basically. So that's, that's an amazing story, um, if that, that should happen. So that's not the problem. So what are we going to do on the moon? So um, let me tell you about the story for the moon. So here is the moon, then, as, um, as viewed from the Earth. Okay? And we want to go on the far side of the moon, okay? because that's shielded from all this radio interference on the Earth. Okay, so here is um, um, a view um, on, on the far side. Okay. Um, so it's full of, full, of, full of craters. And we're looking basically near the south pole of the moon. Um, and what is interesting about, about, um, about the craters um, uh, that are actually on the limb of the south pole, it's on the limb of the moon that we can see. Um, and so what is interesting is that the, these craters are in, in a zone which is um, um, more or less in twilight most of the year. And you can see that the craters have, have, have all been given names. And um, let's consider, uh, say, one of these. Um, and, and so they've been now mapped by um, uh, infrared probes um, a couple of years ago. And so this, they, they were mapped and the temperature was measured inside these enormous craters, which are 20 or 30 kilometers across, volcanic craters on, on, on the moon. And so, um, so one major discovery from this um, satellite, which imaged, thermally imaged these craters on the moon, was that um, um, they're actually very cold inside because they're always in shadow, okay? And so, um, and they found not only that, but they're full of ice as well. So there's a huge supply of water on the moon, and water is the key ingredient you might need to eventually uh, be able to develop a base on the moon. So water is not, a, is not a problem as long as you're not far away from one of these craters. And inside these craters, they've actually measured the temperature and you can see, what would, so this is in units of um, Kelvin, 
Um, and so we are today around here, 300, uh, about 285 maybe. Um, um, but in the centers of these craters, you know, it's incredibly cold. And, and throughout the entire year, um, the thermal imaging show there may be 40 or 50 degrees above absolute zero, which is amazing. And so that makes this site very attractive for, um, for doing astronomy because you want to do infrared astronomy um, involves cooling down a telescope to really low temperatures, looking at the infrared. And that's how you can see the most red-shifted wavelengths of the universe, how you want to look for the first galaxies. And so it's a great site to build a really big telescope in the future. Okay? So astronomers are interested in that. Um, and the one country that's been making so far major efforts to, to build things on the moon, set things on the moon, is China, actually. Um, so this shows you um, the lander um, they had, um, the moon rover that the Chinese put on, 1713. There's a telescope that they set up on the moon, a robotic telescope, which is running now, observing stars and so forth. Um, and um, the Chinese in next year have a project to um, um, send an orbiter around the backside of the moon and bring samples back from the moon and study the backside for eventually building a, a, a base there. Again, in the 2030s, and when I stood, if you want to do something on the moon, you have to start early and, and it's a progress, you know, a long progress. So the Chinese have this very much in mind. Okay, so, but no one knows in detail exactly uh, what they want to do on the moon. All, all I've heard is that one of the goals of the Chinese Space Agency is to have the first woman on the moon. <laughs> could be a Chinese woman, so that's one of their goals announced, okay? But when that will be, I don't know, but maybe in five years, within five years almost certainly. Okay, so they're, they're, they're interested in man, man flight and they're, they're developing a base on the moon. So the ESA is very interested too. So the, there's a new director general in ESA who was been there about a year now, and his, he has strong interest in developing the idea of going to the moon. What he wants to do, he's talked about, is developing a, a moon village. And so what is the point of this? Well, the idea is that his idea, the ESA concept idea, is that one can do um, business and tourism. That's, uh, you know, one can find those things being discussed. And so what is the sort of business you might do on the moon? Well, it's mining, basically. So the moon has been bombarded um, for a long time, for billions of years, by asteroids. There's no atmosphere to protect the moon. And so all of the rare elements in the asteroids accumulate on the surface of the moon. So it's a great place to, um, um, to look for rare materials, rare elements, like titanium or whatever. But, but there's an even greater prize on the moon. Um, so helium has an isotope called helium-3, um, which does not exist on the Earth, okay? Um, but you can produce it on the Earth because tritium decays, heavy hydrogen decays into, you know, leaves you a trace of helium-3. So, um, um, so one, one can make it in small amounts on the Earth. Why is helium-3 so important? Because it is the future for doing nuclear fusion, okay? If one day we want to have safe nuclear fusion, then helium-3 is one of the key ingredients for a fusion reactor, as opposed to nuclear fission, which is messy and polluting, etc. Now, the moon is a huge source of helium-3, because all of these, all, all the cosmic rays and debris falling from the sun, ejected from the sun, basically, mostly cosmic rays, while they impact the moon, they produce helium-3 as one of the byproducts of those impacts. And so the moon, the surface of the moon is probably covered with lots of, we think, must be a great source of helium-3. So if one could go there and mine helium-3, which occurs naturally, one could produce enough of it in great quantities to um, really uh, revolutionize the future of energy in a century's time. And we're not talking, you know, short time scale here, but this is something for the future. Anyway, so that's, that's you know... And so anyway, so one, one goes on, and, and tourism, I should say, imagine building a resort on the moon. You could have a golf course on the moon. Imagine playing golf on the moon. Gravity's much lower on the moon. Be, you know, amazing. Right, okay, anyway. So that's not, I'm not sure how much that is a part of current thinking, but so here are some more concepts of uh, a rover on the moon. And um, again, this is, these are just concepts, okay? So this is, um, again, um, the eastern moon base, as it might be in, um, in the mid-2030s, okay, with... Uh, Moon rovers and asteroids, okay, around in the vicinity of the south pole of the moon is, is, the, current, is the current view. Okay, um, so, um, so you can imagine then um, 
you know, uh, eventually. Um, and so the, these, these buildings are, have been des are being designed and they're made from materials that one finds on the moon. So the idea is, to, is from the dust, basically, you can compress it in various ways and you can merge it together to make ideal materials for, 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 for building. That's one of, one, one, of the, one of the ideas being explored at the European Space Agency. And, and, and various other you know, uh, ways of... Um, one doesn't have to transport everything to the moon from the Earth, which will be expensive, but you can imagine eventually figuring out ways to um, you know, develop and construct things, um, build things locally on the moon. So, um, for this reason, um, one ought to imagine what could the moon do for science, okay? So, one thing would be um, using the, this very cold um, craters, which are stable, very cold. They're ideal places for building infrared telescopes. But what I uh, think is um, ultimately much more, even more exciting, is to go to the far side of the moon and to... Um, lay out these antennae over an area of hundreds of kilometers on the far side of the moon um, and um, build a radio telescope, an array of radio telescopes, which will be able to um, really look back at the beginning of the universe. And so let me show you then, um, just sum try to summarize for you what, what, this, what this could do. So one would want to start off with um, a, a, you know, a suborbital program um, using the microwave background mostly um, and to start with too but then you're limited this is where we are at the moment actually you're limited to the magic number of a million patches on the sky that you can add together to look for these tiny variations from patch to patch but you'll never find it because the prediction is not of order 10 it's of order remember, 0.01 that's what you're looking for some number that's a thousand times smaller than any upper limit we have today from our latest satellite this is from the Planck satellite um, which has just uh, you know, recently finished taking data and has given us you know, wonderful new constraints on cosmology from the microwave background. Okay, and then the next step is to um, go into, um, is to now build telescopes. Okay, we've, we're doing this now. We're building enormous telescopes under progress, both on the, on the ground and in space, to survey galaxies. And the idea now is that by doing surveys of billions of galaxies, instead of having just these million patches on the sky in the microwave background, you suddenly have billions of patches, and now you can do much better statistics. You know, your number n is bigger, so your, your random variations, the square root of n, are, are going to be bigger, so you, so you win. But you only win because, unfortunately, you're limited to the square root of the number because of these inevitable random fluctuations by, you know, maybe a factor of 10 which is very good. Maybe, again, if we're lucky, we'll find some hints there of the beginning of the universe. But there's no guarantee, just as there is no guarantee, that we'll find these missing hints in the microwave background. Okay, so um, what we want to do, ultimately, then, is go to the moon. And the reason is, then, that one can suddenly now, by looking for these clouds, these building blocks of the galaxies, we suddenly go from our, you know, from our billions of galaxies to, to, to tens of billions of clouds, which must be there early on before they've all assembled into the galaxies. And then, I can now, if I have data on billions of these clouds, I can now look for the fluctuations, the variations from cloud to cloud, and suddenly I can now get to um, the desired territory getting down more and more. Not quite there yet. We need a, a, a second generation, which will be an even larger array on the moon, but why not? Once you get there, you start doing this, and then you can um, get to the, to, to the holy grail, which is this, um, this number of, um, of, um, of 0.01. And that, that is um, just a, um, a generic prediction, okay? Uh, one is a generic prediction, but you want to get to, for complicated models, but you want to get to... to 0.01 to really do this problem. And then maybe you'll see patterns in the sky when you, in, in, this, in this weird thing that I'm calling this parameter, which is exactly where we came from, exactly what the model is that we came from. So that, that's, that, that's the great hope. We'll, we could finally, um, by building this giant assembly of telescopes, a ray of antennae really on the moon, and calling the signals together, we could do a, do a lot better than, um, um, than we can ever do with it with, with, with anything. So this is, this is a project for the, for the future. Now, there's one real complication with all this, and that is we live in a dirty environment, not just um, from the radio signals I've talked about, from our mobile phones, internet, all this stuff, but also, and that you can escape to some extent on the moon, but what you can't escape is the Milky Way. So the Milky Way itself is this immense source of, um, 
of low-frequency radio noise. In fact, radio astronomy began in the backyard of an American astronomer who, who first built the first radio telescope, a really simple machine, and saw the Milky Way. Okay, that was his major, a major discovery. It was a big surprise at the time, in, in this is in the 1930s. Um, and so one has to think of clever ways to get around that. But the beautiful thing about this sort of project is that because you're looking for some really, really specific frequency, right, from this atom of hydrogen, which is being excited in a very particular way, um, then all of these other backgrounds are spread out in frequency. And so we know from experience that we can be very clever and think of ways of beating down, beating down the noise in the system. And um, anyway, so that's, I think it's all very, very promising for the future, but so much needs to be explored that one has to, you know, as is usual with science, you have to begin, you know, um, step by step. So the first project will be certainly to put a satellite in orbit around the moon and then eventually lay a few things on the surface and then, then do more and more. Okay. So um, to summarize, um, I've, I think one can say now the limit of what we can ever do in understanding our beginnings, cosmology, the origin of the universe, is to try to answer the question, where did we come from? Um, this would be um, the science on the far side of the moon, would be the ultimate probe. We can never, I think, do any better than that. Um, that's as far as we can go, um, in, because before then there was basically, before these first clouds, there was, there was nothing visible. Um, and, so that, and they would have this imprint um, from the very beginning of the universe um, on their distribution. And so the idea is to, um, you know, have this telescope on the moon, which gives a huge improvement, anything we can do today. Um, and um, it would be a great complement to um, other projects involving a base on the moon, um, both um, you know, with both business and science and tourism aspects. Um, why not? Why not do science as well? And I think um, this will uh, enable us to, you know, understand the creation of, of the universe that we see, and incredibly take us back to as close to the beginning as we can ever get. Because when the universe inflated rapidly, that before then there was essentially nothing to see. But we can actually get back to that moment that imprinted this signal on the moon, on our fluctuations, and, and prove that this theory has a very high probability of um, of being correct. That's about all we can hope to do. But that will be an amazing goal um, in the next, um, I would say, century for cosmology. So, thank you for listening. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.